Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The world is desperate to understand the threat posed by Omicron, the new variant of the coronavirus. But how can experts make sense of the emerging data? And is it too soon to make predictions? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier, an editor at The Economist. Also coming up on today's show... Two years into the pandemic, the sense of uncertainty unleashed by Omicron is nothing new. How well have policymakers used the field of statistics to make decisions amid so many unknowns? You can measure some things, but you have to infer what's going on underneath. And that is difficult, and it leaves room for a huge variation in interpretation. So essentially, the statistics becomes politicized. And we'll hear the winning entries of our sound-inspired final book giveaway of the year. But first... Omicron is already detected in more than 70 countries, but probably it is in many more because many countries we now have little or no sequencing capacity. Slavia Chenkova is The Economist's healthcare correspondent. It has already replaced Delta in South Africa and is expected to account for the majority of cases in the UK and Denmark, at the very least, in the coming days. Tracking the data that's emerging from those countries will be essential for understanding the threat posed by Omicron to the rest of the world. There are lots of studies being done at the moment on Omicron in many different countries. All of this early data is becoming clearer pretty much by the hour. Uh, We have several studies coming out every day. So the first data we saw from South Africa was, you know, this is a rapidly spreading variant. It really displaced Delta. There were doubts that, you know, this may happen all over the world because South Africa's population and other things may be different. But we are seeing this variant now really displacing Delta in Europe, which starts to look like it will probably do so in most of the world. Where can we look to get a good idea of what to expect from Omicron? South Africa, of course, is the first place because it's probably furthest ahead in its Omicron epidemic, but also Britain, which will be regarded as a bellwether for other Western countries, partly because uh, its population is similar, the types of vaccines and vaccination coverage is more similar than it is in South Africa. 
In Britain, new Omicron infections are estimated to be running at 200,000 cases per day. And modelers there have started to calculate the probable characteristics of the variant and the impact it could have. On December 11th, one group of experts at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine published a preliminary model of the spread of Omicron in England. This projected that there could be somewhere between 25,000 and 75,000 more deaths in a winter wave of COVID-19 if there are no changes to England's current pandemic restrictions. But there are still many uncertainties. What we do know is how fast Omicron is growing. Mark Jitt is a professor of vaccine epidemiology at the university and one of the authors of the model. And so if you look at the increase in those number of cases, we see that Omicron is increasing very rapidly. But this could be due to two things. One is that lots of people in the UK are now protected. They're immune because either been vaccinated or they were infected in the past. So Omicron could be spreading very fast because it's evading this immunity. That's one possibility. The other possibility is Omicron is just much better at spreading. And those two possibilities trade off each other. So if this variant is very good at evading immunity, then it doesn't need such a transmission advantage in order to spread very quickly. In fact, if it's super good at evading immunity, then actually it's probably at a slight transmission disadvantage. Otherwise, we would see even higher rates of growth than we're seeing now. On the other hand, if it doesn't have much of an immune escape advantage, if it's actually blocked by the immunity that we have, then in order to see these rates of growth, it has to actually have a big transmission advantage. It has to be able to spread very quickly. Let's take it back a step. How did you take into account the very limited data that's available on the Omicron variant to estimate the transmissibility of the virus? Well, when we first did the study, the kind of data which were starting to emerge was data on what are called neutralizing antibodies against Omicron. So what that means is people took blood from people who had been either vaccinated or had COVID before, and these blood samples contained antibodies that actually neutralize the virus when it enters our bodies. You can actually measure the level of antibodies binding to the Omicron strain to see how effective these antibodies are. And the higher the levels of these antibodies that we record, the better protection we expect against the virus. The good thing is that in the past, other investigators have looked at the level of these neutralizing antibodies people have and compared that to the effectiveness of the vaccine that we've observed in the real world against COVID. So we know roughly the relationship between these antibodies and actual protection against COVID. We don't know whether Omicron is different because it's so different from previous strains that the relationship might not hold. But at the moment, I think it's the best data we have. How did the level of neutralizing antibodies produced for Omicron compare to previous variants? Well, we found about six studies when we did our modeling work. And across those studies, we found a range um, ranging from a 20-fold drop to maybe about a 50-fold drop in these neutralizing antibodies compared to their ability to neutralize the original strain. And then when we took that mapping function we got, we found that that translated to sort of like a, between a 45 to 70% immune escape ability of the virus. That means compared to someone who is vaccinated and encountered the original strain of COVID, someone who encountered 
Omicron would have a 45 to 70 percent lower immunity to, to this mutated virus. So that's all compared to the original strain. But how does that compare to the Delta variant? Well, the Delta variant might have a two or fourfold drop in neutralization compared to the original strain, but that compares to a sort of 20 or 50-fold drop when it comes to Omicron. So Omicron is unfortunately a variant that is really good at evading immunity. Delta does evade immunity, but nothing like to the same extent. What about booster doses? How does that change things? Well, when we give someone a booster, the body says, let me learn from this virus again and, you know, hone my skills at making these antibodies. Now, the booster is still the booster against the old strain of the virus. But because the body is now making so much of these antibodies, even when it sees a new strain, the Omicron variant, it's making so much antibodies that it keeps Omicron at bay much better than if you just had two doses of the vaccine. Since we've done the study, we've also had data from the UK Health Security Agency who looked at the people who got COVID and looked at the vaccine status. And they found that people who had had the booster were actually pretty well protected against Omicron. People who only had two doses were not very well protected, especially, unfortunately, if they had the AstraZeneca as their first two doses. But if they had either AstraZeneca or one of the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer or Moderna as their first two doses, and then they had the booster with an mRNA vaccine, then they had pretty good protection against Omicron. So let's move on to some of the uncertainties in your model. Do you have any idea of the severity of Omicron yet? We are hearing reports from South African hospitals that doctors are seeing milder cases of patients who are coming to hospitals but don't have the most severe symptoms due to COVID. We can't draw firm conclusions from this yet because a lot of these patients who are getting Omicron are reinfections. So it's possible that these patients have less severe symptoms simply because they have had antibodies from having had COVID before already. There are also other immune system cells like T cells, which might actually play a role in protecting against the worst effects of COVID. And it might be possible that T cell immunity is more robust, even though Omicron has mutated. It's only maybe in a few weeks' time when we have enough cases that we can maybe distinguish between the patients who are reinfections, the patients who are admitted for the first time. We can also take into account other aspects of these patients, like their age, their vaccine status, which might be different from previous waves. And then we can start to understand, is this new strain Omicron, is it less severe? Is it equally severe? Is it more severe? Professor Mark Jitt, thank you very much. Okay, welcome. Thanks. Slavia, how useful are models like Professor Jets? They are very useful. Obviously, if you're in a policy-making position, you want to know how bad things might get so that you can act early. Because if we've learned one thing in this pandemic is that the earlier you act, the better your outcomes are when you're dealing with something that has an exponential growth like this virus 
So models, of course, are just projections of various scenarios driven by assumptions that may change. Uh, and those assumptions are anything from how effective the vaccines are to how people behave. And these things may change, you know, after a model is put together, as more information comes in from studies, as people change their behaviors, how many of them will seek boosters, how many will stop going out as much or work from home more, and so on and so forth. As the data from Britain indicates that the two doses of the Pfizer or AstraZeneca vaccines offer little protection against an Omicron infection, what about severe disease and death? That's really the million-dollar question at at the moment. Pretty much all scientists expect uh, that the vaccines will be more protective against severe outcomes than they are against infection. That's been a pattern with previous variants. And we have some early data from South Africa that suggests uh, that the vaccines are still quite protective against severe outcomes, though possibly a bit less so with Omicron than they were with Delta. And that's why the UK is now having this massive push to get boosters rolled out very quickly to pretty much all adults. But of course, this data is preliminary, so we are all waiting with bated breath to see how it plays out in Europe. As you pointed out, boosters are key. But the World Health Organization previously advised against prioritizing boosters so that more people can get the first vaccine. But the new information about Omicron makes this trade-off even trickier. How should developing countries cope with the Omicron variant? In countries with high levels of Omicron and uh, older populations where hospitals may get overwhelmed when you have a big wave, boosters are making a lot of sense. Of course, the question about global supplies of vaccines is very important, but the patterns we are increasingly seeing are that in many poor countries, vaccine supply is no longer the biggest problem. A bigger problem is getting those vaccines that are arriving on on planes into arms. So there are problems with vaccine demand, problems with the health system capacity to organize vaccination campaigns. And that's where the focus should be right now. Savea, in so many countries, there have been anti-vaxxers who have been reluctant to get even a single jab. And of course, President Biden has referred to the pandemic as a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Does Omicron change this? Well, to some extent, it has been a pandemic of of the unvaccinated until Omicron came along. With Omicron, we are infecting lots of vaccinated people becoming infected and, and passing on the virus to others, at least people who have not had boosters yet. But we should remember that there are large numbers of people who have not been vaccinated at all. And those are the people who are showing up primarily in in hospitals and intensive care units. So if you look at severe disease at this point, it is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. For transmission, all of us who are vaccinated can still pass the virus on, but we are much, much less likely to get severely ill. Slaveya, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. For more analysis like this, as more facts emerge on Omicron, subscribe to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory rate. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in your show notes.
Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. With data now emerging on the Omicron variant at an increasing pace, the uncertainty surrounding the next few weeks and months should diminish, or so we think. Data is only the first step in understanding the pandemic. The interpretation of such information can lead to very different conclusions being drawn. To dissect how the world has coped with this influx of both uncertainty and data, I spoke to Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter. He's a statistician at the University of Cambridge. His latest book, co-written with Anthony Masters, is called COVID by Numbers and serves as a data-driven guide to the pandemic. Now, David and I have a long-running dispute over data and how it's used in society. I'm a proponent of big data. He's a little bit more cautious. But we have a lot of respect for each other. But you should keep in mind the fact that there is this intellectual tussle that's been going on for years because things get a little bit heated when we have our conversation. My first question was how well society has done in trying to interpret COVID data. One of the problems with the pandemic is that we just study what's going on around us. We're obsessed about what's going on in our own country. So I can just really talk about the UK. And I think from a data point of view, it's been successful. There have been some problems, but I think the national organisations have done an extraordinary job in trying to collect the data and being very innovative in their methods, developing new modelling techniques, getting them out to the public, producing a dashboard with an API so people can download it. So everyone's doing their analyses. And I think they've done a very good job. Oh, by the way, complete conflict of interest. At the early part of the pandemic, I was appointed as a non-executive director for the UK Statistics Authority. So I would say they're great, wouldn't I? But I really, really mean it. Seriously, you've got a situation in which you have multiple definitions for the same sort of thing. If a death happens after 28 days in Britain and the person has COVID, it's not counted as COVID. The public is completely confused. And I think the media has been trying its very best, but has been quite poor as well. So from the data collection, where we're not actually collecting the things that are relevant, policymakers not actually using the data in a very thoughtful way, the data actually being mishandled in ways that I think are novice errors. I'm really stunned that you are so optimistic. I don't know where to start in saying how totally wrong you are. I think I'll just work through it in a progress. I've never heard so many errors and fatuous statements in my life about COVID. Yeah, there have been mistakes. Of course there have been. There are multiple definitions for what a COVID death is because there is no definition for a COVID death. Shouldn't by now we have one? No, absolutely not. No. Why not? Because there is such demand, quite rightly, from the media for the public for a daily update, 
The numbers we hear every day are not the number of COVID deaths, and no one should claim that they are. That's what gets reported. Another definition of a COVID death, and I'm not saying this is the only definition, are the ones reported by the Office for National Statistics about 10 days later about what's on the death certificate, which is probably as good as one can do. But then you have to distinguish between whether it's a death with COVID or as the underlying cause, as about 90% are. And even then, in the first wave, that missed a huge chunk of deaths And every country counts COVID deaths in a different way. Belgium's always top of the league table because they're extremely generous in what they call a COVID death. Other countries demand that you have to have been tested positive and so on. And some countries don't record any COVID deaths at all. Let's move on to the confusion that I've seen during the pandemic, where experts can have the same data, but come to very different conclusions. Explain that. Yeah, usually it's through selecting different bits of data rather than completely the same data. But even people who are not arguing can come up to very different conclusions. So let me give you an example. You know, this magic R number, you know, RT, the average number of people each case infects. There's eight different groups in the UK estimating that. They're estimating the average for the country. They're essentially estimating the same quantity and they've got access to pretty well the same data. And they all come up with different answers. And they come up with answers with intervals and the intervals don't even overlap. So there's no way they can all be right because they're using different assumptions. They're using different models. R is an unbelievably virtual quantity. You can't count how many people are being infected. So you don't know how many people have got it. You don't know how many people are getting it. You can't see the transmission. If we could see the transmission, then everything would be dead easy. But we never do. We have to infer it all. So people can come up with different answers for the best of motives of all trying different methods. What about on Twitter, though, when some epidemiologists disagree about some of the data and the debates can be quite heated? That's different, right? There is this other business about the confrontational aspect that's been between many scientists. Frankly, there are a number of academics who have not, shall we say, covered themselves with glory over this whole pandemic. And frankly, I think whose reputation has been tarnished by their outspoken support for a particular viewpoint based on their interpretation of the numbers, which usually will go way beyond what the numbers are actually saying. Come on, these statistics cannot tell you so much. You can measure some things, but you have to infer what's going on underneath. And that is difficult, and it leaves room for a huge variation in interpretation, particularly when amazingly, those interpretations are very often tied to particular policies and recommendation for or against particular policies. So essentially, the statistics becomes politicised. And I've publicly and repeatedly said that if an academic in an area to do with statistics or even epidemiology, epidemiology is about the causes of disease and the progress of disease. They are not experts in policy. So I think that there should be enormous caution. In fact, any scientist, I believe, working in this area should not be making policy recommendations. It's not their training and it's not their job. I was really disappointed that someone didn't fly into the fray and say that actually the fact that there's multiple interpretations is actually a feature. This is how science works, where people have different ideas. And the nature of data is that it's never a slam dunk, or actually almost never a slam dunk. And often it will lend itself to different interpretations and that we should find a way to adjudicate that, which is the feature of intellectual scholarly debate around data. What can we do to enable that? 
as has happened in some areas, as I said about the estimation of R, it would have been disastrous if only one group were doing it, because you wouldn't have known that it was so dependent on the assumptions and the models being used. The fact that there are eight groups doing it, and then they get together, and then they decide on some consensus value and a, quite a broad range around that, is extraordinary success on the scientific method, as you say. And similarly, all my information comes from Twitter, essentially, and I follow a range of people, many of whom views I don't particularly agree with, but I really want to know how they're interpreting the data. And I've learned a lot from different groups of people who interpret the data in different ways. So this is how things progress. This is right. Professor Spiegelhalter, your book is about data during the pandemic. What is the most surprising statistic that's come out of COVID-19 that you've been tracking? Oh, goodness me. I've been amazed at the importance of age. It's still, I don't think, being really grasped. People have made a thing about other risk factors and stuff. It's all dominated by age. This virus hates old people, and it is very generous to younger people. The risk of dying from COVID doubles for every six years that you're older. Now, this dominates almost everything except people with very severe health conditions. It's still staggers me how important it is. I still don't think it's really got into people's heads. And you also wrote that the pandemic saved many more young people. What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a net lifesaver for for younger people. So in England and Wales, for people aged 15 to 30, in 2020, 300 fewer died than we would normally expect. And actually, there were 100 deaths with COVID on the death certificate. So that means there's even more non-COVID deaths prevented. Now, the point is that the 100 people who died of COVID, their families are upset and mourning and things like that. The 400 families who somebody would normally have died don't know. Now, this is because... They were locked up at home. They couldn't go out and have car accidents, get involved in drunken violence or whatever. I I pointed this out because I thought it was a very interesting fact that it's been a net lifesaver for young people. Oh, God, the abuse I got. You know, from the, oh, you think it's a good thing the pandemic happened, oh, blah, blah, blah. No, I don't think this is a good thing. We shouldn't lock up young people. Life is risky. And I'm just saying that that is the result of the measures against the virus. Professor Spiegelhalter, you're perhaps most famous as a risk researcher. So as the holiday season looms, how should people deal with the uncertainty around Omicron and evaluate risk? Yeah, they should be quite cautious. I'm not going to say how much the risks have changed. So the point about when we got a lot of uncertainties, that is the point when what we call a weak precautionary principle might come into play. In other words, you don't wait till you're sure of a risk before you take some measures against it, particularly when within a few weeks, we're going to know what the risks are a lot more clearly. So in the meantime, given the risks, you know, this is a very high risk period, lots of people meeting up indoors, to be pretty careful. So, David Spiegelhalter, it is always a delight to not only talk to you, but to argue with you. I love it. I love it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. And finally, it's time to reveal the winners of our final book competition of the year. A few weeks ago, we spoke to Nina Krauss, a neurobiologist and the author of the recently published book of Sound Mind, How Our Brain Constructs a Meaningful Sonic World. The book is about the ways in which our auditory landscape affects how we think. Following the interview, we asked listeners one of our typically fantastical questions for our book giveaway competition, and the question was, 
what is the most remarkable example in history in which the auditory landscape of an individual affected an outcome in the world? As always, we received a cornucopia of great responses. One listener, Albert Francisco, noted the nursery song, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Mary had a little lamb, its feet were white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. It was one of the first sound recordings by Thomas Edison on his recording device and paved the way for phonographic records and eventually digital recordings, like, 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 like the one we're listening to, 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 to now. We also enjoyed the entry from Anvila in Beijing. Hello from the children of planet Earth. This is the voice of a six-year-old boy on the golden records that accompanied the Voyager spacecraft, which was launched in 1977. It is a message for aliens on distant planets to enjoy and learn about the human species. And Vila's analysis, once it's uncovered by aliens, the inscrutable consequences are still to come. For listeners who want to learn more about the golden records and how extraterrestrials might interpret human sound, scroll back to our Babbage episode of October 26th called Cleaning the Air. Other notable mentions in our competition include Edvard Hall from Sweden, who nominated the very first telephone call. When the inventor, Alexander Graham Bell, said to his assistant, Mr. Watson, come here. I need to see you on March 10th, 1876. Watson heard the message. History was made. And now my teenage daughter will never get off her phone. Civilization regresses. We also enjoyed the entry by Dana Woodruff in North Dakota. She relayed how her uncle, who was an organist, used to speak of how in the Middle Ages, preachers would skillfully time organ music to build up the emotions such as fear or joy to match the content of their sermons. But our favorite, and this week's winner, is Rahul Pandit, who suggested the singing of Christmas carols, which inspired the famous Christmas truce in the First World War. German soldiers began caroling, matched by British soldiers. And soon after, they left their weapons and trenches and were exchanging gifts in no man's land and playing football together. It is a particular reminder of the power of music to fill the human soul with emotion and love and goodwill to all, which I think we need a lot more of these days. Congratulations, Rahul. I hope you enjoy the holiday gift from The Economist. And our thanks and goodwill to all who entered. Peace on Earth and good ratings on Babbage on your podcast app. Now, to all of our listeners, we know that you could have entered the competition and said that the most remarkable example in history of an auditory landscape affecting the outcome in the world is listening to the Babbage podcast. And we thank you for that. Not just thanking you for listening to this episode, but for the entire year. Babbage this week is produced by the incredible Jason Hoskin. It's mixed by the brilliant Nico Rofast. And the executive producer is the wise and wonderful Hannah Mourinho. I'm Kenneth Kukier, loaded with adjectives in London, and this is The Economist, and have a great holiday season. 
and a great new year. My colleague Alok Jha is hosting Babbage next week, and I'll be back in January. Bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.